This episode of Sports Medicine Weekly is brought to you in part by Karen Malkin's new protein brownie bar and superfood bars, best tasting bars on the market, certified gluten-free, paleo, and no added sugar. Karen's protein brownie bars and superfood bars available on Amazon and at KarenMalkin.com. Also, JRF Ortho. They partnered with orthopedic surgeons to improve the quality of life of patients by enabling them to have an active life through the generous gift of cartilage and ligament transplantation. Please go to jrfortho.org to learn more. Sign up to be a tissue donor at donatelife.net. Welcome, everyone, to Sports Medicine Weekly. I'm Steve Cashel, along with Dr. Brian Cole, head team physician with the Chicago Bulls, one of the team surgeons and also orthopedic specialist surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. And Dr. Cole, how are you? Steve, I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out, our sponsors are incredibly important to us. And I think our, our listeners of our episodes uh, within our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast need to know that all of the net proceeds go to support orthopedic research at Rush University Medical Center. And uh, as you know, you know our, our colleagues are actively involved in searching for the most up-to-date solutions that are reliable to help our patients stay on their feet, get rid of pain, and uh, keep them active and functional. So it's a really important endeavor, and it's, the, it's really the mission behind our podcast. But we also obviously want to dispense uh, great information that our, that our listeners will find interesting. Well, I think we've got a great topic here, Dr. Cole, vaccines of athletes. And we want to uh, have us uh, have you walk us through the situation in the NBA, being an NBA team doctor for a long time. You work with the NBA, I know, and of course, specifically with the Chicago Bulls, a Bulls all-star guard and leading scorer Zach Levine entering into the NBA's health and safety protocol recently. Uh, take us through testing and um, what this means uh, and where we're at compared to where we were five months ago. It's, um, it's a fascinating uh, uh, area, Steve. I remember back when uh, I never thought I'd become an expert in this area. I can tell you that much because, you know, I, I, I think back to the days when we first started taking care of the Bulls and we had a, a heart issue in one of our players, Eddie Curry, and I had to learn about arrhythmias and what we call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a condition I barely ever heard of other than in medical school. And all the I remember, by the way, yeah. you, because I, I got to know you, I'm like, this is an orthopedic surgeon and you're on a board there with, I think, Dr. Kathy Weber and talking about uh, as if you were a cardiologist. I'm like, boy, this is really interesting how an orthopedic surgeon, I want to get into that maybe in a future podcast, but the, and that was like your first year, second year, right? Yeah, it was crazy. I was, I was like, this is, if this, if this is what it's going to be like, I got to stay, I got to continue to be a student. And you know, it's, I, I, you know, it's interesting when you're a medical student, you can pretty much once you get into the groove, you can pretty much learn anything. And so that was a topic that we were able to, you know, delve into. And there's plenty of information. And I also have experts around me to ask plenty of questions. So while I wasn't a primary decision maker, I knew an awful lot about it, even up to and through genetic testing and everything else. And, you know, the analogy is with uh, coronavirus back in March and April, um, I didn't know uh much about you know the infectious disease side of it, what a, what a pandemic was, uh, how you know how do we protect ourselves? What are the mitigating efforts? A year ago, efforts? you're talking about right. What's that? A year ago, you're yeah, talking it was just, about. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, you know, a little longer than a year ago today. And if you just think about where we were, and very quickly because we stopped working, I stopped seeing patients for about five weeks, except for emergencies. So we didn't do any surgery, and we had no formal clinics, and we were just basically tri triaging more emergent situations to keep people out of the emergency room. 
And um, a lot of that time was just spent reading. I mean, I was just, you know, doing deep dives into articles from the CDC, from the NIH, from publications, from, and it was all happening real time. It's the, it, it was amazing how the information was coming out so quickly and in such a dense fashion. And then also how much misinformation was because people wanted the information quickly, but there, there often wasn't time to sort of do the, the same analysis uh, that we often that we typically would just because of the gravity of the situation. So you could see how in one month we'd be we'd be talking about one thing, and a month later it would be maybe a different framework. So that part was really fascinating, but also intellectually stimulating. Yeah. So you know, look, I think um, obviously uh, COVID is still with us. Uh, in fact, uh, at the time of uh, us doing this episode, the numbers are still rising in various places, especially when mitigation efforts uh, such as social distancing and masking are unfortunately have remained some of it a, a political issue. So you look at Michigan and Michigan is as uh, bad now in terms of the number of cases and number of hospitalizations as it was in September. At the same time, we're faced with uh, a variant or uh, several variants from various places including South Africa, that uh, are more trans easily, more easily transmittable. They may be more uh, 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 deadly, and they are. Um, it, there is always concern that the current vaccinations that we have available to us might not actually cover us for all these variants. So it's not over, but the flip side is you got, you know, a 20 plus percent of the population is being vaccinated and uh, uh, millions of people being vaccinated each day. And I think the landscape is changing. You know, we were going to reach herd immunity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, enough people getting the, the disease or vaccine. And the combination of the two is really what's going to sort of get us there. Um, what's going on now is that um, the vaccines are you know becoming increasingly available to more people as different states go into different phases. Most recently in Illinois, they uh, approved uh, to go for 16 years of age and older. So our younger people now can get vaccinated. So we're still going to fight that supply demand curve, but at least more and more people are eligible. And then obviously with the recent challenges with J&J, &J, that adds a whole new dimension because that was you know briefly put on hold while they try to analyze these adverse events, which mind you, Steve, are very, very rare, right? You know, I'm sure you've heard a bit about that. And the incidents that at least initially reported was one in a million for this one adverse event, which was... Uh, platelets that would drop and then people would have a blood clotting uh, situation, which was very serious, but arguably epidemiologists would say that, you know, that type of thing um, can happen even independent of the vaccine. And that's what a lot of those things were reported as saying, look, we see these problems anyway. Is the vaccine really making a difference? Well, and take us through, Dr. Cole, if you will. All right. This specific situation uh, with an NBA player, I brought up Zach Levine. Um, how does one enter into the NBA's health and safety protocol? I, I you know, as a fan, um, a former broadcaster would say, well, Zach is, you know, you guys are doing testing. I'm not there every day, of course. Uh, but take us through. So the NBA players are still being tested daily or weekly or a couple times a week. And then how does one enter the protocol? It's obviously from a positive test, correct? Yeah, well, not necessarily always positive test, Steve. It can be uh, being traced out. Okay. So um, I th the, the, the basic paradigm is that uh, just because we and other organizations test regularly to determine positivity and potentially being infectious, that doesn't mean you still can't get the, the, the virus. And uh, so that's the first tenant. So it, it, what's stunning is that our players are just, and the, the players in the NBA have been incredibly mindful 
And the policies, despite now many of them getting vaccinated, we're trying, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous effort for advocacy to vaccinate the entire NBA, the entire Major League Baseball, and it's, it's happening. Obviously, there are some individuals, and we'd love to talk about, you know, who still are resistant and have concerns about getting the vaccine. But fortunately, the percentages of people uh, agreeing and willing to take the vaccine is very, very high, and I'm, we're grateful for that. But despite that, things can still happen. And the testing, what hasn't been completely uh, worked out is how will testing change once everyone is fully vaccinated. At this point, text, testing is a regular thing. And we've learned, and you'll, we'll have some publications that will come out of the NBA experience that have taught us some very interesting uh, uh, principles. When one tests on a regular basis, you can actually uh, there's a sensitivity to not always, not only do you, can we catch people just turning positive, we can get a sense of infectiousness based upon how they turn the test positive, the so-called uh, CT threshold or CT count. It's a, it's a laboratory based assessment that sort of indicates how difficult it is to m maybe, you know, culture or assess the virus. And the more difficult it is, despite turning a positive test, the less infectious you are. The flip side, if someone were very symptomatic and then turns a test positive, that person is thought to be much more infectious because they have more viral copies and the testing that they do um, can more easily demonstrate the presence of the virus. And in that situation, then uh, we believe that person's more infectious. So when someone's completely asymptomatic yet turns a positive test, there's actually a, a way that because of the thousands of tests that have been done, we've learned to actually determine when someone could turn a test, but maybe is not infectious. Does that make sense? Yeah, you, but you said, uh, you know, we're testing all the time. Give me a more specific. I mean, is that, are these players tested daily? Is it weekly, a couple days a week? No, I mean, it's, what, daily. Is there it's an NBA daily. Rule? It's daily and, and, and sometimes twice a day, even after a game. Okay. So the density okay. of testing is very, very high, and I'm still testing pretty much daily, despite it being fully vaccinated and having an immune response to the vaccine. All right, so tell us what you know then, Dr. Cole, um, how a vaccine works. You know, let's say the player, because you can't get vaccinated, you know, one one day and one another day. I got vaccinated uh, three weeks ago. My next one is basically in a week or two, right? You have to wait. So how does that work? And it takes a little while for it to kick in, so to speak, right? Right. So it, it does. And the vaccines are, are really fascinating. Um, you know, the vaccine was the, the DNA, the genetic pattern of um, of COVID was, was actually uh occurred in January of 2020. And because of a really essentially a worldwide collaboration between our governments and companies and billions of dollars spent, uh, they were able to actually synthesize the genetic code, what we call messenger RNA, very quickly. And it doesn't involve the virus, it doesn't involve eggs, it doesn't involve cells, but they were able to reproduce the messenger RNA. And messenger RNA um, basically gives instructions to ourselves to make what is really a harmless piece of the virus called the spike protein. So the spike protein is a, uh, is a protein that's found on the surface of the virus. Now the virus that causes COVID-19 will have a spike protein. And when your body sees this spike protein, if you get infected, it, the immune system responds by producing an immune response that can be either antibodies or memory cells, what we call B cells and T cells become activated. So that's how basically most vaccines work. They mimic in a non-pathologic way what the virus would otherwise do if you got the virus, but you don't get sick from it. 
because it's it just it's not an active virus. It's a it's a piece of something that the body recognizes. So what happens okay. is that the messenger RNA basically provides instructions for our immune system to make the piece of protein, and then after the piece is made, the cells that made it in that were induced to make them from the vaccine, the cells break down and the instructions go away. So the instructions sort of a one-time thing. They instruct our cells to make the spike protein. Um, that protein is seen by our immune system to then uh, remember an immune response. But because it's not the virus itself doing the damage, our immune system basically is poised and ready should you be faced with the virus in real time to respond appropriately at an elevated level. So it's always like having, it's like activating a little army or Pac-Men who can then um, fight, uh, you know, what happens in a natural infection against COVID, but it's mimicking it so that if you do get infected, that it can fight it in a responsible way without the virus winning. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to take a break right now. We'll be right back. Um, I want to recognize a couple of our sponsors. Vericells, one of our sponsors. They develop, manufacture, and uh, market uh, autologous cell-based therapies for patients with serious diseases and conditions. For more information about their products, visit vcell, V-C-E-L dot com. Also, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. MOR among the international leaders in musculoskeletal health. Midwest Orthopedics at Rush physicians, all faculty in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Rush University Medical Center, which is currently ranked number five in orthopedics by U.S. News and World Report. Founded in 2003, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush is comprised of internationally renowned orthopedic and spine surgeons who pioneer the latest advances in technology and surgical techniques to improve the lives and activity levels of patients around the world. The physicians of Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, proud to be the official team physicians for the Chicago Bulls, Chicago White Sox, and Chicago Fire Soccer Club, along with the Joffrey Ballet. Visit RushOrtho.com to learn more and schedule an appointment at one of the Midwest Orthopedics at Rush's convenient Chicago and West Suburban locations. Back to our topic, Steve Cashel, Dr. Brian Cole, you're listening to Sports Medicine Weekly. So an NBA player um, goes into the protocol, Dr. Cole, we're thinking with a, a positive test, or as you said, maybe the contact tracing, is there a rule, an NBA rule of how long they have to sit out? Because we hear these NBA players are now into the health, NBA's health and safety protocol. What does that mean? And why can't they put a specific time on it? Well, the longest time absent of any you know significant complication or medical issues pertaining to the virus is basically 14 days. And the reason is that, uh, so this, you know, when an individual is in the protocol, they're basically in isolation. So that has its own implications. And that's, this is all recommendations by the CDC. It's the, we, the, the NBA, the MLB, all of us basically follow what's publicly available by the CDC. And so at a minimum it's 10 days, but the challenge with athletes is that because they're going back into a high exertion sport and we remain concerned about other complications related to potentially being infected, uh, there is a cardiac assessment. It's almost like a return to play program uh, after having a concussion. So any athlete who is uh, in the protocol for whatever reason, again, Steve, remember sometimes people are just traced out and they're not necessarily positive. So we're you know we're not, I'm not providing any information one way or another about you know what's in the new, in the media. I'm just telling you that there's a lot of reasons that people are going to a protocol, and um, and it doesn't mean they're sick either. So. Um, 
a minimum of 10 days, and then they are deemed uh, presumably in the absence of symptoms for 24 to 48 hours to be not infectious, even if they did turn a positive test, okay, if that was part of the situation. Yep. But then returning them back, there are, there's a cardiac evaluation, a heart evaluation, because there have been reports of uh, associated heart issues that can be triggered by high levels of exertion. Wow, so yeah. so that. that's yeah, where absolutely. we, it's like returning a, play, a player after concussion. It's right. a uh, exposure to exercise. It's some baseline testing and then exposure to exercise to make sure they can tolerate that return. And then, um, then they can return and that can take upwards of 14 days. And then unfortunately, because when they're in the protocol, sometimes they can't exercise, work out, train, they don't have access to the same resources. You've got to deal with the reg, the, 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 the impairment that's associated with just, you know, being on, you know, losing strength, losing out on strength and conditioning. So it's complicated. And, you know, I said from the beginning of the, the year that um, we all recognize that even absent of the injuries that we see games will be won and lost based upon uh, COVID. And our team has been, I think, exemplary in terms of uh, doing everything possible for mitigation. And that's the thing that I was saying before that is so stunning is that despite all of the efforts, and I'm not talking about the testing, I'm just talking about the efforts to avoid being infected by someone else, which are extraordinary. And these guys are insanely disciplined. Um, it still happens. And I think that's what the public needs to know that this has not gone away. This is, this is a system where people have all kinds of resources in the, and they're responsible and they're motivated, yet it can still happen. And um, I think that that's what people have to recognize that this is still here. So think about as people let down their guard because they think it's they're tired of it. They're tired of this COVID thing. That doesn't mean that it's gone away. And truth be told, as I mentioned, in certain states, especially Michigan, our neighbor, um, they're struggling again. And the ICUs are, are seeing patients again and people are dying again. And, and it's, it's, it's still a going concern that we can't just assume that because the vaccine is here, we're still dealing with being far from herd immunity, if you will. And, you know, think about it, the, the cost of the healthcare system. Um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about the vaccine, but why the vaccine is so important because, you know, just think about it, you know, five years from now, if someone says, well, look, uh, everyone else around me got the vaccine. I didn't. And now I've got the disease and they're in the hospital system. Just think about the enormous impact on the healthcare system of people who choose not to get the vaccine, let alone their exposure, that the, the, the risk that they're putting themselves in. Let me stop you there. Are there NBA players? You touched on this at the beginning of our, uh, of our show here, this episode, um, that are they asking the NBA players if they want to get vaccinated? They don't have to if they choose not to, Correct. There's no mandate, uh, to my knowledge, in any sport that says you have to do it. But I could be wrong for some. Um, I will. I will say that you know this is, this becomes a, uh, uh, m m I would say, medical, legal, even ethical dilemma. You know, I I can tell you that, for example, I cannot show up for work unless I have a TB test and have my DPT, TB tuberculosis. You know, the okay. little skin test you used to get to put the wheel yeah. uh, under your skin to see if it turns red. So I cannot work with patients in healthcare unless I show a negative TB test on a regular time over regular periods of time, and have my immunizations uh, DPT test, uh, you know diphtheria, uh, uh, pertussis, uh, and uh, tetanus. I have to make sure that I'm and polio. If I have to make sure that I'm vaccinated, I cannot go to work and see patients if I'm not. Okay. And so 
there are going to be situations in the workplace, and I'm not saying this is happening now to my knowledge in sports, but where people cannot come to work unless they're vaccinated. Let me add this. NFL recently issued a memo to franchises stating it will limit the access of some team personnel who don't submit to a vaccination. So what they're saying uh, as it stands right now, mandatory player vaccinations would fall under collective bargaining with players having their uh, working uh, conditions negotiated by their union. So, but they've told some uh, key personnel, the key personnel at NFL teams, you better uh, be vaccinated. Otherwise, you're not going to be around the team. So it's the first league. It's the NFL again that has uh, actually um, issued the memo um, and uh, mandating that they're tier one and tier two personnel get vaccinated. So maybe yeah. more to follow with the NBA, MLB, and uh, the rest of the professional leagues. Yeah, I, so I think, you know, what they're saying is it's not that you can't come to work, but rightly so, because you could be more ri- at risk of infecting others uh, and or getting the virus yourself, we want to l- responsibly limit you so that just like you were when, you, when, when, when no one was vaccinated, there's no reason that they should be able to sidestep the protocols. The vaccine does allow us to change some of our behaviors. And while we're still looking into the ability to be secondarily infected after a vaccine, that might happen. We are still remaining concerned about the new variant slipping through uh, the vaccine. That might happen. Um, And uh, also potentially being a carrier to infect other non-vaccinated people is also a concern. So we're still working through the details, but there's no question that the bar is very much raised after you're vaccinated in terms of how you might or could behave in the public segment, in the public sector without, with, with reconsideration for mitigating efforts, such as social distancing and wearing a mask. In point of fact, the CDC now, Steve, is, has position statements on what do you do if you have a room of 10 people who are all vaccinated and, no, and, 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 and you know, how can they behave and so forth. So that's, those are fact patterns that you and I have to sort of be mindful of. And I think at some point we'll do another episode for our podcast on this so that we can educate the public on what you know, the CDC says in terms of what we can and cannot do. I wonder if we could just spend a couple of minutes uh, before we finish up this episode on the vaccine itself and maybe some of the myths that are out there related to the vaccine. Please, the vaccine. Yeah, that'd be great. So, Steve, you know, there were two vaccine trials that were well publicized. One was the Pfizer trial, which had about 43,500 volunteers. And the other one was the Moderna trial, which was uh, 30,000 volunteers. And those those vaccines are pretty similar. They have, uh, you know, cold cold storage and require two vaccines spread out of a couple of weeks. And what people need to know is that there was a very, uh, uh, there was sufficient representation of minorities uh, which was one of the concerns in those trials in terms of uh, representation by black individuals. It was over. It was approximately ten percent in each of those trials. Um, in terms of representing people in high risk conditions, about forty five percent of them in the Pfizer trial had high risk positions, but only about twenty two percent of them had them in the Moderna trial. So it wasn't always looking at um, high risk people, but when it looked at individuals of color in general, in general, more than a third of the volunteers in the Moderna trial were uh, people of communities of color and Hispanic and Latino communities were represented um, uh, by about 13% of the Pfizer trial. So the take home is that uh, it it had a very fair distribution of what we see in the United States that was believed to be representative uh, in the trial because one of the concerns is that 
a certain population wasn't fairly represented, so how can we draw conclusions? Both the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine have been about 94% or better uh, efficacy against the infection. In fact, with the Pfizer vaccine, it was 90% effective against severe COVID infections. Um, in the Moderna vaccine, it was 100% effective against severe infections. So even if you unfortunately became infected, it was very effective uh, in preventing severe disease. People do worry about the side effects of the vaccines. And, you know, truth be told, the most common symptoms are brief uh, sight pain at the, and redness at the site of the injection. Um, and fewer than 10% people will complain of fatigue and muscle pain. And less than 5% will complain of joint pain or headache or, and, and rarely a fever. Um, there's a little higher chance to get these symptoms with a second dose. Um, the, the, what has been, what we, we learned is that simply taking Tylenol can mitigate those, 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 those symptoms. We don't know if this vaccine will protect us for life. Um, we're not ready to say, give up mask wearing and social distancing after we get the vaccine. I will tell you that, uh, some of the myths and that's, I, maybe we can finish up with this is that the, you know, as I described to you, it's not the virus that's being injected. So the COVID-19 vaccine cannot give someone the COVID-19 infection. Uh, the COVID vaccine will not alter our DNA. There's, uh, it will not cause infertility or a, a miscarriage. Um, there's never been a focus of vaccinating specific communities to test the vaccine. It was widely assessed across all race, gender, age, etc. There was a uh, this, some there was a myth that the the vaccine has a microchip to control the population and and even deport people, which is just absurd. Um, so you know those are some of the things that were 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 sort of confabulated, and I think it's important to understand that you know there's there are some cultural biases and concerns that weigh into someone's decision to take the vaccine, but when you look at some of our underrepresented minorities across the board, the incidence of hospitalizations and even death is much higher uh, in some groups. And it's that at-risk group that really needs to strongly consider taking the vaccine more than as much as anyone else, because there's something readily available that can change the course of our history right now. And um, when you weigh the pros, cons, and the adverse events, which are very, very rare, um, I think that just the general balance is to take the vaccine. And people say, well, which one should I get? My that's a good question. Yeah, that's one. a big topic with the J&J. &J. Yeah. You know, until they sort the J&J &J issue, I would just take in, which is on hold at the time of this uh, episode, I would say take the one that's available to you. So that's, that's, my, uh, that's my take on it. And I hope this is helpful for our listeners. Great stuff, Dr. Cole. We appreciate it. Thanks to all of our sponsors, and uh, we will look forward to uh, doing our next podcast. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Sports Medicine Weekly, and our website is sportsmedicineweekly.com. So long, everybody. So long, everybody.